Welcome to episode four of season two of the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterton. And with everything taking place in the world today and the renewed focus on energy security, I'm very excited that our guest this week is Frank Fannin. Frank is the inaugural holder of the United States Assistant Secretary of State for Energy Resources position. He and I met in the United States Senate. He's also got industry experience, uh, but really did some amazing work at the State Department talking about America's role in our global energy policy landscape. Frank, it was meaningful work when we did it back then. It seems even more relevant with what we're seeing in the world today. Thank you for joining the Plugged In Podcast. Yeah, Neil. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's great. It's great to catch up uh, with you uh, on this side of uh, on the private side from from our government experience. It was it was a great time then, and we're still continuing to tri- find ways to contribute today. Well, you've been a real leader in this space during your time at the State Department. Uh, you were actually the lead on on energy sanctions, and we're having a conversation again in the U.S. today uh, about potential sanctions and looking at Russia and looking at sanctioning Russian energy. And uh, it seems to be something that is gaining bipartisan traction. You've got members on both sides of the aisle and both chambers of Congress starting to talk about this now. Uh, can you give us our listeners a, a sense of, of how that might work and, and what some of the, the opportunities and pitfalls of that might be? Yeah, thanks, Neil. Happy to do it. Um, and it is an absolute tragedy what we're seeing unfolding right now. Um, so as you, as you mentioned, I, I led energy sanctions for the U.S. Uh, that primarily was focused on four countries, uh, Iran, Russia, the DPRK or, or North Korea uh, and Venezuela. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's important to recognize why we impose sanctions. It's, it's intended to deter uh, behavior and to, and to change behavior. Uh, and, uh, and, and we do that through, through a variety of, of means. Now, what, what we also have to always be mindful of, and this was particularly the case in, 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 in when we imposed sanctions on, on Iranian oil and gas, is to, to prevent and minimize blowback. Uh, you know, you, you want to you harm the, you want to you impose uh, will on, on the target country. You don't want to, uh, you want to minimize contagion. You want to minimize uh, effects on, 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 other, uh, on other parties. Um, and certainly that in, would include in the United States in, in, in that case. Um, the case of uh, uh, Russia, it's a big oil and gas exporter. Russia gets uh, gains about 60% of its export revenues come from the oil and gas trade. But really, the preponderance of that is, is in oil. Uh, only about 6% of that 60% of revenue, uh, export revenue, does, does, does Russia generate from, from the sale of natural gas. Um, so, so really, you know, when we were in the State Department, we looked at Russia's energy, uh, but in two different ways. You, it's important to distinguish the oil component from the gas component. Uh, Russia gets ca- cash, gets money from its sale of oil, but they really gain influence from the sale of gas. Um, what, what the sanctions program that the administration and, and other world Western countries have imposed on Russia really are intended to deprive the, the, the economy of, of revenue that I continue to use for purposes of war. Um, to do that, we should focus our, our efforts less on the gas, more on the oil. 
Uh, but how do we do that in a way that that minimizes that that harm? You mentioned the blowback the, and, the, and the pressure, bipartisan pressure. Um, it's great to see a degree of bipartisanship. It's unfortunate that war is what drives it. Um, but I, I would say the way the way we should go about doing this is you can take a playbook from what we did with respect to Iran. Um, what we what we sought to do was was reduce the uh, the import of, of that oil uh, around the world, not just the United States. I see the, 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 some legislation being considered right now would focus on simply uh, banning the import of Russian oil into the United States. The problem with that approach, however, that might make us feel good, that, those, those, the, that oil could just be absorbed elsewhere. We really need to put together a program uh, which would prohibit uh, the, the ability to import Russian oil uh, around the world. Uh, and that's what we did in the case of Iran. It would have to be a phased in approach uh, over time. You can't do it uh, immediately. Uh, Russia is a meaningful exporter of oil, uh, one of the top three. Uh, so we have, to, we have to do that in a paced fashion that understands the impact on markets. And it would have an impact here domestically. But what you're saying is Americans would deal with that consequence. We would deal with the sacrifice. We would see even increased pressure on prices at the pump. And you're saying geopolitically it won't have an impact unless other Western powers or not even Western powers, unless the rest of the world uh, similarly boycotts Russian oil. Yeah, the way the way you would. Well, first, let me if I can go back to our, our case with the context of Iran. So Iran uh, in that instance, we took more than two million barrels of Iranian oil and condensate off the market. The you know, various analysts and media commentators thought that we were going to destroy the, the U.S. economy and that of, of other uh, of other of the uh, really world economy. But we didn't do that. Uh, why? Well, we found replacement barrels. Uh, we found replacement barrels uh, in two two areas. First, we did it in, in close partnership with Gulf producing um, uh, countries. Uh, we, we had strong relationships with some of those countries and we very much did it in partnership. So we timed that. Plus we had a reasonable expectation how the U S oil and gas industry would respond to market conditions. Um, we're, we're kind of lacking those two elements today. Uh, we, we, we have a, and according to media reports, uh, a, a challenging relationship with some of the Gulf producing countries between the U.S. And, and those countries. And secondly, we seem to be the industry actual or perceived uh, mixed messages from, from, the industry, from, the, from the U.S. government, uh, where oil, what is oil and gas's place uh, in, the, in the global economy? And, and do they have the confidence to invest in, in domestic production? Um, so we, we, need, we need that corresponding supply increase if we're going to take those Russian barrels off the market. I think it can be done. But we, again, do it in a phased approach. You would make an announcement, say you're going to start phasing out Russian oil. Um, you, you, would you would talk to those other producing countries to seek a corresponding increase in production. Uh, and you'd also talk to the industry. The industry, according to various industry uh, people, have, they want to hear something positive from the administration, that they have a place uh, in, in, the, in the energy transition uh, as well as today, so so I think I think the hearing hearing that signal is is, is would be very powerful, uh, and that's how we could initiate the that that balance of barrel trade uh, that we're talking about.
what would that signal look like? I mean, what, what do you think is driving this uncertainty by industry? Is it, you know, the administration's approach to climate change and environmental regulations? Is it leases? Uh, is, it, is it EPA rules? Uh, what, what do you think is, dry, is causing this uncertainty for industry? Yeah, I think, I think it, it, it's, it's all of that, but I, I would say it's less, uh, less of a, in my view, and again, most of my experience is on the foreign policy dimension, so I want to be a bit careful here. But I, I think, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the production, as you know, Neil, is on private land. Um, but what, what the industry is facing is also a constraint of capital uh, to increase production. Uh, you know, Wall Street has is, is been looking askance at, at the oil and gas sector because of this potential broader regulatory push. Uh, and, 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 and part and parcel of that is, is around the, the climate change policy. So, um, you know, having the, just the, the, the affirmation from the, from the United States of oil and gas's place in the world, now produced in a responsible way, of course, but having that strong endorsement, uh, I think would send the signal also to Wall Street and the financiers of the oil patch that this is still an industry that's going to be around. It's important. It's important today for, for global security uh, and economic security, but it's also going to be important tomorrow. I think that kind of signal um, would just help take this, this, this unknown of the future uh, uh, off the table and allow that capital to be deployed and, and, and for our industry to, to get after it again. I want to pivot back to something you said earlier, uh, that oil is critically important to Russia economically, but it's gas where they really get their geopolitical strength and, and have this dominance over Europe. Um, you know, Germany uh, announced that they would not certify Nord Stream 2. Uh, you, for one, uh, have for years uh, been skeptical uh, of Nord Stream 2's viability. Can you talk a little bit about Nord Stream 2, about how and about how Russia exercises gas dominance geopolitically? Yeah, sure. The, the Nord Stream Two is is a uh, a content a continuation of a policy that Russia uh, had embarked on for several years, uh, which would be to circumvent, go around the gas transit system around Ukraine, so they would not have to uh, pay the transit fees to Ukraine. And nor would they have to, more importantly, have a constructive relationship with Ukraine. Um, they're really trying, you know, pipelines uh, can, can have a greater import than just simply infrastructure. In this instance, the pipeline infrastructure that Ukraine had to the West uh, was really a bridge to keep uh, Ukraine tethered uh, to the West, to freedom, to democracies, uh, to Europe. Uh, Russia, by circumventing uh, the by circumventing Ukraine, going around Ukraine with its pipeline infrastructure, uh, really is seeking to, to cut that bridge off uh, because they wanted Ukraine in its orbit. This was years ago, as you mentioned, we had a, a, an aggressive uh, sanctions uh, program around that by wide, by wide bipartisan support, incidentally. Um, and now we see what's happening today. I think it, it was no mistake it was it was it was absolutely purposeful that Putin is waging this war after Nord Stream Two was fully completed, um, because he no longer needed Ukraine to transit that gas uh, through Ukraine, and and he continued could continue to exert 
his overwhelming influence on Russian gas importing states like Germany. Uh, Germany for years had considered Nord Stream 2 uh, as, as a quote-unquote commercial project and that Putin, the Kremlin, was always a quote-unquote reliable supplier of gas. Um, I think that the truth uh, is, is, is bearing out on our television sets all the time now. Um, we had bipartisan levels san leveled sanctions on, on Nord Stream 2. Uh, we were very effective in doing that. We put multiple pauses on the construction of that pipeline uh, in, in hopes to that the, the, the Germans and other countries, uh, but mostly the Germans and the Austrians, would come back and reject Nord Stream 2 and instead make the necessary investments for their own energy security and diversification. Um, by being overly dependent on any country, it changes really the psychology of a state. It changes their ability uh, to see uh, to see where they should be in the world uh, because they're in this sense of dependency. Uh, then you need to create optionality away from that dependence so that you can actually allow the market to work. And, uh, and so that's, that was our policy then. Uh, it, it's really unfortunate to that uh, where we are now. Uh, I'm pleased to see that the Germans finally did agree to, 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 to finally uh, end Nord Stream 2. Um, but here we are. Uh, unfortunately, people are had to, had to die for, for us to come to that realization. Is this an opportunity for the U.S.? Can American LNG fill the void and, and come to the aid of our European allies? Uh, without question, uh, it, it, it can. Uh, without question, it can. I think it, it's really up to the, the, the countries to make the investments for the infrastructure and to, to, to ensure that that optionality can exist. Um, but this isn't just speculative uh, kind of academic thinking. This has been proven out in real life. Uh, take a look at the, the case of Lithuania. Um, Lithuania sought to build their own LNG FSRU importing infrastructure some years ago. Russia initiated a, an aggressive uh, hybrid, hybrid campaign to undermine that, that project, calling it uh, uneconomic, among other things. Uh, very politically active in, in Lithuania. Um, the Lithuanians uh, were smart and courageous, and they continued to make those investments. They recognized the project was a strategic investment. They named the FSRU the independence, incidentally. Uh, within about six months, uh, Gazprom was forced to change the, the pricing structure for the gas to Lithuania, and, and they dropped the tariff by some 25%. Uh, the, the independence was, became economic within, within about uh, six or eight months. Uh, so those investments... Uh, we're already the, the, the upside of that investment was captured within a year uh, by creating the optionality to cre creating a market by creating competition uh, for, for, for liquefied natural gas. It forced the Russians to behave like like a market participant rather than just a dominate a domineering power. Um, that's what we need to see across Europe, across the the, the, the importing nations. The, the, the other thing I think is important to note is that gas is actually an accelerant to the energy transition. It's a complement. It, it's not in contrast to uh, that gas. By having that gas deployed, it, it creates uh, the ability, the, the back upon which renewables can be built at scale. And we're going to need a lot more of that.
you've talked a lot about the energy transition globally and what the factors are that are driving it. Can you uh, fill our listeners in on on some of your observations and, and what you encountered as you traveled the world in your capacity the State Department? Uh, you know, what is the state of the uh, energy transition, not just in the U.S., but globally? Yeah, the energy transition is such a big concept. And, and maybe I could just step back a little bit. Uh, and I was reflecting on well, what what are what is we we've had multiple energy transitions throughout history. This isn't uh, this isn't the first one, but this is a unique one. Um, in in history, we energy transitions occurred as a result of a technological improvement that was adopted at scale, and it's usually because the new form of technology uh, was more energy dense. It had greater efficiency. It was safer. It was environmentally preferable, etc. What's different here is this is a policy-induced rather than a technology-induced energy transition. Governments are driving this forward uh, in many instances because of of, of the the calls to address climate change. Uh, the, The technologies, in fact, haven't been invented yet that are necessary, or they've been invented but they just haven't been, de- been able to be deployed at scale. So we've got a real challenge going forward on how to implement a policy-induced energy transition when the technologies haven't fully, been, haven't fully materialized. So that, that's the first point. The second point is, you know, as in the case of Iran uh, oil, the America, as you know, Neil, we became uh, the biggest oil and gas producer in the world during, during our time uh, in government. The, that energy abundance create a, a, a degree of foreign policy optionality for America and, and for those of our allies. Um, what we're also doing is transitioning from, uh, again, governments are choosing to transition away from the energy in which we are quite abundant to one in which we are insecure. Uh, we uh, are not in control of the supply chains of the clean energy technologies that were that are required. Uh, in fact, our greatest adversary, uh, strategic adversary uh, across multiple administrations, China, is in control of that energy supply chain. So we've got two major challenges going forward. First is the supply demand gap needed to achieve the energy transition at scale within the time horizon that policymakers are telling us need to happen, and, and second are the geopolitical implications of who is in the current dominant position of that clean energy supply chain. Now, you did a lot of work on this during your time at State, uh, particularly working on an initiative to create a clean minerals network. Uh, Can you uh, fill our listeners in a little bit on that and how you see that tying into the global energy transition you just referenced? Yeah, thanks, Neil. The, The... you know, this was built on uh, this, this concept, you know, you start looking at um, where clean energy technologies come from. And, and as, I, as I would like to say, as, as clean and green as any energy technology may be, it requires very big shovels at the beginning of its life. We have to mine more. We have to mine so much that the World Bank concluded that the to achieve the the, the Paris targets would require some increase 
a 500 to 1,000% increase in, in demand for minerals that feed the energy transition. Uh, you know, the, the, the scale of this is truly exponential. So what we did is looked into, well, well where are these minerals? Who's investing in those countries that, where those minerals are located? Why are Western companies or U.S. companies not investing in those countries? Um, and what we found is many of these minerals tend to be in the developing world, in places that have uh, actual or perceived reputational risks for Western countries or companies where they won't go. Uh, and, and that creates a vacuum. It creates an opaque investment climate, and it makes it perfect place for, uh, for predatory investors like like China and Chinese SOEs. And so what we, what we did is, is sought to create a, a new standard, if you will. Every country I've been to, uh, every minister, head of state I met with, they all say the same thing, is they want more U.S. investment. They, they want to partner with, with con- companies that embrace uh, our, our, our values. And so um, what we sought to do is create a, a, a mechanism so that those uh, countries can can attract those kind of those kind of best in class companies. So we partnered with uh, four other countries: Australia, Canada, Botswana, and Peru, to form the Energy Resource Governance Initiative, ERGI, as it were. And, and what what ERGI seeks to do is is identify a global set of standards, a toolkit that countries can adopt and implement. The U.S. government would provide capacity building support to help countries implement that toolkit. And then we would seek to mobilize capital through the Development Finance Corporation uh, to to, to help those countries and those projects uh, be developed and do it in a way that aligns with with our values. Um, I'm pleased to see a degree uh, of continuity across the, the former administration and the current one. In fact, the Biden administration has defined ERGI as one of the, the pillars of its foreign policy in, in this space, having spoken about it publicly in multiple, in multiple communiques. Frank, you really have had some uh, incredible experiences throughout your career and particularly during your time at State. Uh, can you tell our listeners, what are you doing now? Yeah, thanks, Neil. I, I, uh, I have a consultancy, uh, Fannin Global Advisors. Uh, I advise uh, business leaders uh, on all matters of, of the energy transition and geopolitics uh, a, a across the board. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's extremely rewarding. There's a degree of continuity, as I mentioned, in the administrations, but also in, in the work that I, I did there. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful to, to be able to work with some, some really uh, best-in-class companies. Uh, and I'm also participating in a variety of think tanks uh, in, in, in town and, and, and as well as elsewhere. Uh, so we can continue, continue on the fight goes on, but I, you know, the, the energy transition is very much uh, underway, Neil, as you know, uh, but, but the geopolitical tensions are, are, are certainly on the rise as well. So, so we're here to help, uh, help, help companies and partners around the world, uh, find those opportunities in, in, in the geopolitics, the energy transition. During your time in state, I know this as somebody who tried to, to get on your calendar from time to time, you were in the air in other countries just constantly. Uh, are you still on the road all the time or you get to spend some time at home more? <laughs> no, no, uh, 
uh, do both. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to still be on the road, uh, but also to be home. Uh, you know, the, 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 the expansion of this minerals intensity issue, developing clean energy supply chains, Neil, is really creating new opportunities and, and expressing new interests by, by countries around the world. I was recently in Saudi Arabia, who, who convened uh, a global forum, the first ever in the MENA region, the Middle East, North Africa region, on minerals. Uh, you know, the, these countries, you know, Saudi Arabia is building a clean energy supply chain. They, they own Lucid Motors, uh, but, but they realize that they too need minerals to feed into their supply chain. So you have this new look at frontier areas that never considered uh, the, the, the prospectivity of some of these, of these minerals and metals. So it's, it's a really fascinating time uh, and, and new frontiers of opportunity are opening up all around the world. And, and we're here to, here to help, help work on those issues. I've seen some uh, pictures of uh, Secretary of State Pompeo recently. He looks fantastic. He's lost like 90 pounds. Everybody's speculating that when you have that kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, physical transformation, it means you're running for something. Uh, are you still in touch with the secretary? And uh, you think he's uh, seriously thinking about 2024? Uh, I still am. I'm still in, in touch with him. Uh, and he does. I completely agree. He looks great. He's got... Uh, uh, energy uh, and he, he had a, and he's talked about this before. He had had a foot problem, and so I think it was all part of the, just his getting healthy again. Um, I can't speculate on his uh, uh, on his, his his future political aspirations, but I know he's very much enjoys being involved in the fight and and, and supporting uh, freedom uh, here at home and around the world. And 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 we'll see what the next step. Uh, holds for him. Uh, but he does look, he, he looks great. He looks happy. Uh, another uh, uh, person that I know is close to both of us, uh, uh, Senator Jim Inhofe uh, announced that he uh, will be uh, retiring from Congress uh, to, to be with his wife and his family. Thoughts and reflections on his legacy and, and contributions to uh, the energy and environment policy debate. Yeah, first, Senator Inhofe is one of the just absolutely the most uh, beautiful people I, people I've ever met. He's people. Uh, he's just a, a just a wonderful person. He, he's he's a committed. Obviously, he's a patriot, but he's just a good guy. And there's a lot to Senator Inhofe that people may not be aware of, such as his his, his tireless advocacy in Africa uh, to help the development of that continent, and his 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 deep held uh, belief in that. In the energy context, of course, he was, he's been a leader all along. And I was proud to, uh, back in our days on, uh, in Capitol Hill, um, you know, Senator Inhofe wrote the hydraulic fracturing provision that was included as law in the 2005 Energy Policy Act. Uh, and I was, I, was, I was grateful to have been the Energy Council when he was chairman of the Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works, writing that piece of legislation on his behalf. Um, that that was absolutely transformative. When when I served on the committee, we were convening in the early 2000s hearings on America's energy insecurity, particularly in the natural gas context. Gas prices were so high that U.S. petrochem companies were relocating to to Europe because it, it was just too expensive here. Um, we had a huge economic dislocation. Manufacturing was was hurting, 
uh, and we passed that in 2005. Three years later, 2008, the shale revolution was born. Uh, it was absolutely transformed America and transformed the world. Uh, and his, Senator Inhofe's contributions to, to America's energy story uh, is, 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 and that legacy is quite clear. He will certainly be missed. Uh, uh, a real just gentleman and uh, uh, a wonderful senator, wonderful representative of this country. And I think you said it best. He's a patriot. As were you, Frank Fannin, as are you. Uh, uh, thank you for your service uh, to the country uh, and for your thought leadership on these critical areas. Uh, and thank you for joining the Plugged In Podcast. Thank you, Neil. It's really been a delight. Look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks again for listening to Season 2 of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time. You can also keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter written by yours truly, Jeremy Beeman.